Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome to this free episode of Dunk Don. Nate and Danny go over Seth Partnow's stats that he'll be providing to us. If you're interested in this type of thing, we already have Seth a couple, a few times a week, analyzing the stats himself, writing a, a nerd nosh, talking about a topic that, that he is more understanding of with his statistical expertise and also his basketball expertise. Soon we're going to have Seth's stats published publicly, at least for Dunked On Prime subscribers. So if you'd like to be a Dunked On Prime subscriber, you can at dunkedon.supportingcast.fm. We've got a sale going in conjunction with Seth joining. dunkedon.supportingcast.fm. All right, it's time to get you guys more familiar with all this great work that Seth Parnow is doing for us. And so Danny and I wanted to do an episode that's exclusively focused on some of these new stats that he's providing for us that we're hoping to make available to y'all within the next month or so once we figure out the best way to make that publicly available. Because unfortunately, I'm not Ben Falk or Derek Bodner, and I am not a programmer. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the 15 teams in the East and put three minutes on the clock for each one. Danny and I have split up the teams. I think we're going to even surprise each other with some of these stats, which will be interesting. But we're going to use this as a lens to introduce you to some of these stats and also hopefully tell you something interesting about each of these teams or the players on their teams. So three minutes on the clock here, and we will start with the Indiana Pacers. And the Pacers' driving engine is, of course, Tyrese Halliburton. But it surprised me because he's never been someone who has been a huge score. He's been increasing over the years, but not someone that you look at as someone who's like dominating the ball so much. But Tyrese Halliburton is actually fifth in the NBA with 51% total usage. And recall that that includes not only scoring attempts, not only turnovers, not only assists, but also potential assists. So you can really see what percent of the time, 51%, that means that 51% of the time Tyrese Halliburton is either making a shot attempt, turning it over, or making the pass that leads directly to a shot for the Pacers. And then the three components of that are scoring, playmaking, and turnovers. And he is first in the NBA, 27% playmaking usage. That's 3.3% higher than number two on the list. Uh, that's Chris Paul. And I thought it's interesting as well that his teammate TJ McConnell is also in the top five. And finally, Hal Burton is doing that. He's not juicing up that 51% overall total usage by turning it over right. because that's really low as well. Yeah, I, I didn't have the full set of that, but the overall usage was a part of my argument for having Hal Burton in the All-NBA conversation when we did awards. And he, he has a really large role within the Pacers offense. It's just not 
in quite the same way as some of the higher volume scorers. And that's part of why I love Seth's total usage stat is that it's trying to get us towards this same thing. And he, the inspiration, which he talks a lot about in um, the mid-range theory, and I believe he also did it in Nerdnosh, was the idea of trying to get a more accurate measure of how much a player turns it over relative to how much he has the ball in his hands, which is really a, an admirable goal because it makes sense. Yeah, and I, I like this more too because that's a, get the potential assist is what really makes it cool to me to just say, hey, how many of the overall plays for this team is this guy initiating to have that number as opposed to just, okay, we can do your assists, we can do your scoring, we can do your turnovers, but capturing the plays when the shots aren't even being made i think is really important in that all right we made made it through that one in less than three minutes who's your first team let's go to the atlanta hawks and the atlanta hawks this is i would say a measure of how unhealthy their offense is they have the highest self-created field goal attempts per 100 possessions in the nba and the second highest proportion of their possessions only the clippers are higher there and i think some of that's just in relation to how many shots each team takes and what's so that's generally self-created shots are harder to make than teammate created shots and what is also concerning for the hawks is that they're on the lower end of effective field goal percentage in that 47.1 percent is on the low side it's not the absolute lowest i may actually talk about one of those teams later on but that means the hawks aren't the the ball is not popping let's put it that way and the your turn my turn stuff that i've seen from trey young and Dejounte murray you know in some ways exacerbated by the injuries they've dealt with makes makes that a, pro- a bigger problem for them well and with two guys who are supposed to be some of the best passers in the nba i would understand if the overall total usage wasn't that distributed that well if the time of possession that's another set that Seth puts for us in these weren't distributed that well but these are supposed to be great passers like they're supposed to be setting up these guys for more shots and instead it seems like it's not even necessarily that they're passing to guys who are missing although that's part of the issue it's also that those guys are just being forced to take more of the shots and of course we've noted how this goes part and parcel with the Hawks leading the NBA in percentage of shots for mid-range and being last I think last time I checked in location e field goal percentage is self-created shots are much more likely to result in mid-rangers or contested shots than when you're setting up your teammates the Miami Heat I thought this was a fascinating statistic and it took me a little bit to think about why this would be the case so Miami forces the lowest percentage of self-created shots in the league only 42.7 percent of opponents shots are self-created that's the the lowest in the league and some of the best defenses are are the opposite right like you want to force more self-created shots those are generally less efficient and I thought like, well, that's interesting. Like, isn't Miami switch a lot? Isn't the point of switching to force you to go one-on-one and self-create your shots? But then I realized that they are basically breaking league records right now for the most amount of zone used, at least in the last 10 years or so when we really have the data on that. And so that's why, oh, that was still the timer from the last team. Sorry. Mm -hmm. That's, I would be my hypothesis on why it is that they are giving up a lot of assisted bucks against the zone there almost really is no going one-on-one against the zone now you could be in a situation where you're holding the ball a little bit longer that's how Seth determines this or just how long the ball has been held before the shot is taken as to whether it's team or self-created and but against the zone you're always trying to move the ball and get the ball to open players and I think that also is 
an important idea on why teams would play zone when you're going up against great isolation players that's usually the best time to play zone or if you're going up against you know a really good post player or something like that uh it's really i think to me more about that than it necessarily is the team shooting that you're going up against on whether to play zone because when you're playing zone you just it's really hard for that one individual to make a play you got to really if or if you are going to do that it's got to be two three passes it can't be that guy making the direct pass out of pick and roll or isolation as much and so Miami does allow around the league average on those self-created shots which is about 49% e field goal that's you know league average being around 49% uh, on self-created that again shows you how self-created is less efficient overall I really enjoyed that not only because it's a, a very useful stat but also because it dovetails perfectly into another of mine which is the team at the exact opposite end of yes. that, which is the Boston Celtics the Boston Celtics we've talked a lot about their offense their defense is generating the highest proportion of self-created field goal attempts in the league the median in the NBA is about 47, from what I can tell, 47, 48% of possessions. There is only one team at 53, and that's the Bucks. And then the Boston Celtics, 55.8% of opponent possession or opponent shots are self-created, which is incredibly high. The Celtics actually have one of the smaller margins between the effective field goal percentage of the self-created and the team created, but it's still obviously less efficient. Like self-created shots are harder to make. And so that to me is an indication that, you know, Boston, as we record this podcast, they're currently eighth in defense, that some of that is really for real. And I'm also fascinated we're doing this right before Robert Williams returns on I hopefully I'll remember about this and like a couple of months from now I'll check it and see see if that outlier now there's probably some regression to the mean that would happen anyway because there's such an extreme outlier but does changing the scheme because you're bringing in this big who plays differently than they've been doing the whole time how much does that change this part of Boston's defense and of course, Boston does the most switching in the league. So that's a, a big reason why that's what you see there. For the Milwaukee Bucks, Brooke Lopez is having an absolute monster rim protecting season. And there's a great chance to introduce some of the rim protection stats that Seth has put together. He leads the NBA in what Seth has as contest percentage. So that means he's how many shots at the rim, what percentage of opponent's shots at the rim are you contesting when you're on the floor? And this, again, will try to give you some context on some of these numbers. Brooke Lopez, he's a center, obviously, he spends a lot of time near the basket, but he's contesting 43.4% of the opponent's shots at the rim when he's on the floor. So th that's just a, an interesting number to kind of think about. Like, what is the upper bound of the number of opponent rim attempts you can contest when you're on the floor? Now, I think a big part of why he's able to contest so many, and number one is just the scheme where he's always dropping back. But number two is the Bucks don't even allow that many attempts at the rim to begin with. So when there are fewer attempts, it's easier for you to contest more of them. Whereas a lot of times it plays at the rim. That happens because there's a breakdown. The center has to get out on the floor somehow. You get behind the center. That's just not happening with him. No. And 
Can I have a quick bonus thing? They're not covered in this, but the second highest contest percentage is Walker Kessler. We'll keep yes. an eye on that. Uh, yeah, no, let's definitely keep a, an eye on that. Um, one of the other stats that Seth has is points saved per 100 possessions over the positional average. So this, this is, I think, very important for one of the principles we're always talking about where the center has a certain job. And so uh, particularly because there's just a certain replacement level with just about all centers of just having a guy who's seven feet tall on the floor around the rim, like he's going to at least contest a certain number of shots like just simply by having a center and that's part of why we've noted when for the same reason when you don't have any rim protection at center why it's so damaging to your team because every team is kind of operating from a a relatively high baseline with the center so Seth compares these numbers to the positional averages and Jaron Jackson Jr. with his return he's having an unbelievable rim protecting season we'll probably talk about him when we do the Western Conference but Lopez is second in terms of points saved per 100 possessions over the positional average at center that's 3.52 points saved per 100 possessions well how is that calculated obviously it's an estimate there to some degree but there are two components to it the first is the shots that the player actually contests so what seth does is he says if no one is contesting a shot at the rim or like a guard is contesting a shot at the rim general or it's a lightly contested generally opponents are going to hit about 70 percent of their shots at the rim like that's the worst teams in the nba new orleans like denver and sacramento is up there allow 70 percent shooting at the rim overall so that's the baseline now we know how many shots you're contesting and we know what opponents are shooting on those so do the math on how many buckets you're saving by contesting these shots and then reducing the field goal percentage from 70% down to what you're actually reducing it to. And in the case of Brooke Lopez, he's allowing only 52% shooting at the rim when he contests the shot. So that's component number one. Component number two is how many rim attempts are you simply preventing? And so Seth takes a look at what is the percentage of shots opponents are shooting at the rim when you're on the floor versus just what is the overall league average for a percentage of shots at the rim. And so now that that's partially a team stat as well. All of these are because you're it's not just about you to reduce that number compared to the average. It's about your scheme. It's about perimeter defense, all, all that, too. So this is partially a team stat but I, I think is the, the best that we have. So essentially, when you look at both the shots that Brooke Lopez is contesting at the rim, the percentage that he's reducing those shot makes by, and then also the shots that he, as part of the team concept, is preventing even being taken at the rim compared to what you would normally see in the league. That's how he gets to that 3.52 points per 100 possessions saved on defense which is i mean that's pretty pretty damn high number and the second highest in the nba is zach collins at 2.57 so that's this is a massive outlier lopez and then jackson is even above him although jackson's played only about a third as much as brooke lopez says i want to go to uh an individual stat and i thought this one especially it how it connects to last season is is so telling and that's demar Derozan of the chicago bulls DeMar DeRozan is number eight in the NBA of kind of like high self-created players in terms of the proportion of his shots that are self-generated. 82.1% of DeMar DeRozan's shot attempts are classified as self-generated, but he is he has the second highest field goal percentage of all those high volume guys. So I did the kind of the top 20 who actually play enough um, on field goal percentage. And that 54.4 effective field goal percentage is only behind one player. And that is Luka Doncic. 
And um, just about everybody who's up there in frequency is at 50% effective field goal percentage or lower. So DeRozan stands out among these players for being incredibly high, high efficiency despite taking difficult shots. It's something that isn't a huge surprise when we consider what DeRozan does, but it gives a greater appreciation of how great he is at that difficult thing. Yeah, and if you think of the way that DeMar DeRozan plays... He's not really going to be cutting off the ball much. He's very rarely going to be spotting up for three-pointers. So it's really difficult for him with the way his game is, which is maybe a bad thing that it's it's harder for him to be an off-ball guy. But you just think of how he plays and just how pretty much everything that he's taking is initiating with him dribbling the ball. And that's how you get to that number. But of course, he's fantastically efficient at it. The New York Knicks couple of stats here i i wanted to hit on with them this won't be as extensive as the brooke lopez one because i was introducing that stat the new york knicks are have a lot of ton of threes this year their defense has been a lot better lately and i'm not even sure what to make of this i just wanted to throw it out there and we can kind of keep an eye on this since this is not something i've looked at before the knicks are allowing the second lowest shooting percentage on contested three-pointers 29.6 percent is all opponents are shooting on contested three-pointers toronto is first in the nba by the way at 29.5 percent if you want to know what the range is on that stat san antonio is worst in the league allowing 37.8 percent on contested threes and the league median is 33.7 percent so you've got about a eight percent range on that about what you you would have on just overall opponent three-point shooting as well you know that's usually goes between like 32 and 40 are like the highest and lowest for a opponent three-point shooting over the years so is there luck to that you would think that there would be less of a luck component to that because of maybe who's doing the contesting than just for if there is a non-luck component to opponent three-point percentage that it would be based on whether it's contested or not because hey some guys are a lot longer they're closing out better etc that's that's you that's one of the explanations for why three-point shooting is not luck opponent three-point shooting is not luck based but the other explanation is well no we're actually leaving the right guys open which is that's probably more as seth has noted more likely to be something that happens in the playoffs when you're really drilled down on personnel and you have team specific schemes but in that case you would expect that the difference would occur more in wide open three-point shooting so that's just something i want to keep up on throughout the year of just how much those numbers change for teams over the year of like what percentage they're allowing contested threes versus uncontested threes and then finally the knicks part of why they've struggled so much this year number one they're not playing the guys who make three-pointers as much or like they had Kemba Walker for a lot of last year Evan Fournier actually set a Knicks record for most threes he's out of the rotation and in part because of that in part maybe due to bad luck the Knicks are shooting six percent worse on uncontested threes this year as opposed to last year and that's been a, a reason why their offense hasn't been as good as you would hope but that said they're still pretty average on offense this year it's been the defense that has disappointed up until very recently but now they've won five straight so that's imagine if they could just start hitting a few more uncontested threes where they might be let's keep it in new york city but switch to the brooklyn nets and a couple of stats that help paint a picture of what makes brooklyn such an unusual team seth has a stat 
um, which basically is it's the high high value shot. So it's attempts around the rim, uncontested threes, and free throws, and does that as yeah. a kind, as, kind of it's like the an updated version of Mori Ball essentially. Yeah, like, an, so it's an not, update, not just threes, but uncontested threes. Uncontested threes. So it's the highest value shots that that are in the NBA, and then scales that per hundred possessions. It, it's an updated three true outcomes for you baseball people. Sure, and <laughs> the Brooklyn Nets have an unusually low they're dead last in high value attempts per 100 possessions they 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 don't get the low hanging fruit i've talked about that before but they have the league's highest effective field goal percentage on self-created shots 52.8 percent effective field goal percentage and they're middle of the range in terms of proportion of those attempts so like they're getting they're making the low value shots at a higher efficiency and they're not getting the high value shots and then to tie into that, this just blew my mind. The, Seth also tracks individual player long two proportions uh, or frequencies. And Kevin Durant is taking the second most long twos in the NBA. Number one is DeRozan. Not a huge surprise there. But Kevin Durant's taking 13.3 long twos per 100 possessions. And most players, like even high volume players there are in the effective field goal percentage are in the like high 40s, low 50s. Not Kevin Durant, 59.2% effect. Or not, and that's not even effective field goal percentage. That's actual field goal percentage because we know they're twos. So Kevin Durant is the only player like this is a frontier with just Kevin Durant in terms of high volume and high effectiveness on long twos yeah what Katie has done in Brooklyn because he gets to the rim far less in Brooklyn than he did earlier in his career and so you're like man like obviously his efficiency would drop off but no he actually just makes every contested shot now it's it's pretty incredible that he's just gotten to be a better and better and better shooter from mid-range as his career has gone on to be having some of his best just pure shooting seasons from just a straight up shot making of contested shots at this point in his career man it is crazy to think that i've been working with helix sleep since 2015 and i think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners if you've never heard it before that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom and there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all they found the one formula the one mattress that was going to work for everyone my then girlfriend now wife and i ordered that mattress we ended up having to return it because hey guess what not everyone is the same and then she did some more research and found helix sleep we took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types and uh, helix offers 20 unique matches everybody sleeps differently and helix matches are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences hot or cold side sleeper back sleeper so take that helix sleep quiz find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge it's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home you're like well how should i order this if i can't sleep like yeah you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do i take my shoes off do i leave my shoes on but then my feet kind of hang off the bed because i don't want to put my shoes on the bed and is it weird that i'm laying here for more than 30 seconds you can't tell anything under those circumstances you might as well just order it get it sent to your house 
get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us i wanted to look at this because you had pointed out how the magic numbers both in terms of rim protection and in terms of their overall defense were so stark with Wendell Carter available and not available. Overall, the Orlando Magic, and remember, this is team length, right? This is Mo Bamba and Bull Bull and Carter when he's out there and You've got Franz Wagner at the three or even the two sometimes. And you've, you've got Paolo playing the three. Like they've had these huge laps. Doesn't help them much protecting the rim. They allow 59% shooting on even contested shots at the rim. That's fourth worst in the NBA. Again, the range and contested shots at the rim, that is within 10 feet. Part of the reason Seth increased the bins a little bit from just pure restricted area is because the tracking on that is a little bit messed up in some arenas of like right on the border of the restricted area or not. So that's part of why he pushed that out a little bit. So, and this is it going out to 10 feet even includes some floaters. But I think once you're within 10 feet, you can probably assume that the big man in question or whoever it is, is at least affecting the shot somewhat so they allow 59 percent shooting on contested shots the room fourth worst in the league the that stat the worst team in the league is 60 percent and 51.1 percent of course is milwaukee at the best uh, uh, in terms of shooting by opponents on contested shots at the rim and 
couple of interesting ones here. Franz Wagner, for his size, really does absolutely nothing at the rim protecting it. Uh, on the season, he is uh, saved 15.9 points fewer than the positional average, and that's just uh, at forward. And his points saved per 100 possessions is really bad there. Mo Wagner, who's actually been getting some tick now, he's played almost 600 possessions. He's even worse already over the course of the year than Franz, despite having played only about a quarter as much. And Mo Wagner, remember Brooke Lopez was at plus 3.5 points per save per 100 over positional average. Mo Wagner is at negative 3.09 points saved per 100 over positional average. He'll take some charges, sure, but he also is not contesting effectively at the rim. And he also is uh, contesting a relatively low percentage of uh, opponent shots at the rim as well. Bull Bull, another interesting one, even though he's listed at forward, even though he blocks a large number of shots, he's not doing the nuts and bolts style of, of rim protection, really. He's played almost... 1600 possessions now and again this is versus forward too this isn't even compared to centers he's at negative 8.2 points saved or positional average versus forwards so he gets some spectacular blocks a lot of those are actually taking place out on the floor but he's not affecting a very large percentage of shots around the rim he's only contesting 21 percent of opponent rim attempts uh, when he's on the floor and opponents are shooting 68.6 percent at the rim against uh, bull bull when he even does contest yeah and it's fascinating when you think about where what that means for the theory of the defense for the magic and things moving forward because i mean i've had the idea for a long time that franz wagner's best defensive position is the four but if that rim protection element isn't there then maybe it is the three which would be fortunate in some ways for the magic because they already have a four and that's Paolo Bancaro. Now, with respect to Franz, also, he's been defending a lot of shooting guard in some right. of these lineups, so he's not going to be spending as much time yeah. at the rim. The, the opportunity is a lot lower, but yeah. the lack of effectiveness when he has an opportunity is a little bit of concern. A stat I really enjoyed, it's a very basic one, but it, it kind of puts a couple of things together. And so basically, Seth takes, there's a stat, I haven't quite found it on the NBA site, though he has, and I can ask Seth where he found it, of, it's called simple shot quality. And so basically, that it's it's a rough approximation i'm assuming of i'm assuming it uses some of the tracking data and where a shot takes place and all that fun stuff and really all this stat does what seth seth singh does is it compares that to what a team is actually shooting and the biggest negative margin between shot quality and so he calls that shot making the idea basically being like how good are the shots you're taking and are they actually going in the worst shot making team in the nba is the charlotte hornets and they're they're pretty rough compared i mean there are a couple teams like in the negative that their effective field goal percentage is worse but the hornets are three percent worse in effective field goal percentage versus what you would expect from simple shot quality and there are only even a couple of teams in the twos the raptors are in the twos the rockets are in the twos and then they're at negative three which is dead last in the league if for those interested the team exceeding their shot quality by the most is the boston celtics they're at plus 4.6 so they are a bigger positive than the hornets are a negative and then and that's even considering that the celtics have a very high shot quality already because of the number of threes that, that they're taking correct um though interestingly in 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 terms of uh simple shot quality they're very similar to the hornets but they are <laughs> they're those two teams are eight they're eight percent different in effective field goal percentage that's how you get the two outliers and a little bonus stat i'm trying not to be super negative on these though i'll have a couple in the remaining ones i have 
I just started looking at the extremes and individual player stuff and started looking at team create. Uh, so like effective field goal percentage on shots that aren't self-created. So that's team created. And unfortunately, one of the players who has the one of the lowest effective field goal percentages there is James Booknight. Just 32.7% effective field goal percentage on shots created by someone else. That is real bad. And I'll just briefly rattle through some of the other ones. And we're dealing with extremely small samples here. In some ways, especially with players who do a lot of self-creation because you know, like they're, they're, you get into that. But here are some of the other players that are low in this specific stat. Patrick Beverly, Chris Paul, Cade Cunningham, Taylor Horton Tucker, and actually DeMar DeRozan. So mm. the, those players, I, I I may do some more digging on that, but I found it, I found it very interesting. Yeah, and that is, we saw that with Chris Paul in the playoffs last year. Like, And be interested to see where James Harden is in that stat too. But it's it does hurt when, when you're off the ball. Like it makes it harder to fit with other players if you can't convert, even if it's rare, the, the attempts that are set up for you or even even if it's a situation where you're making the initial play and then the ball's getting swung back to you or something like that if you can't convert on those and obviously a small sample some of it's luck but there definitely is a component with someone like Chris Paul or DeRozan in particular where they're just that's not what they do they're not ready to shoot they're not they don't work on that really they're not that's just not what they're trying to do they want to if they catch the ball they want to dribble it they don't want to just shoot the open shot Joel Embiid this is I thought this was an interesting way to look at some of the turnover stats that Seth has if you look at just pure turnover usage, so the percentage of possessions that this player commits a turnover, team possessions, Joel is tied for first among players with more than 300 minutes played with 5.2 turnover usage. Would you care to guess, Danny? Hopefully you're not looking at it right now. Who he is tied with for that set. Oh. This is basically going to correlate quite a bit with just raw turnovers per possession. That's, I think that's basically essentially what it is. My guess, my, no, Trey doesn't turn the ball over that much. Um, I don't have a good guess. Russell Westbrook. Oh, interesting. However, this is why it's so important to compare it to the total usage. Seth has a stat called true turnover percentage, where he looks at turnover usage divided by total usage. And that for Embiid is 11.2%. And that's still higher than average in the league, but nothing insane. That's, I think, 37th among players who have played more than 300 minutes. And the leaders in true turnover percentage, the ones are, I should say, maybe not, maybe not leaders, the ones who are bringing up the rear on that have the worst true turnover percentage are largely low usage centers. That's a yep. big part of that due to illegal screens. I mean, some of, some of the names on there you, you might expect. So the worst true turnover percentage in the league belongs to DeAndre Jordan at 20%. And then you've got Avita Zubat, Steven Adams, Zach Collins as guys so i think a lot of those are just illegal screens being set and then bull bull actually is fifth in the nba in that stat and pj tucker hilariously is sixth because that's one where he's probably setting illegal screens as well danny would you care to guess who has the lowest true turnover percentage in the league so that's that's percent turnovers divided by total usage. I will give you a hint because you'll never get it. Okay. He's a center. Oh. And he's a low usage center. Who just never turns it over? And he's one of low. I'm sorry. He is a low usage center in terms of scoring. Does a little bit of playmaking. Hartenstein? I don't have it in front of me to tell you whether that's a good guess or not. That's fine. It is Kavan Looney has the oh. lowest 
true turnover percentage in the league. I guess he and just, that's surprising because he, he gets called for screens sometimes too, though not as much yeah, as many as, but, as not as I much think, as certain people would hope. Yeah, so he's just not coughing the ball up hardly ever. This one you might be able to guess. Second lowest true turnover percentage in the league is a Boston Celtic. Relatively small role, but he's in the rotation. Hauser? Yes. Sam Hauser, he shoots it before he has a chance to turn it over. <laughs> Who's up next here? Let's go to the Cleveland Cavaliers. And Evan Mobley has, you know, you and I have been extremely excited about his rim protection chops. And unfortunately, that hasn't really been there. Some of that, some of it is probably the positional adjustment. But Evan Mobley currently is 355th out of 482 players in terms of he does it as rim protection wins. So basically just like how much, how much are you adding or subtracting from that? And Mobley, part of it is that opponents this year are making 62% of the shots that he contests. And that's definitely a concern. Um, and so like, it's just surprising to see that. And part, and I, I've talked about how it was part of my Jared Allen number two and defensive player of the year argument that the Cavs have been very effective in the Allen on Mobley off minutes. And so we'll see how this goes moving forward. But Mobley not looking as good based on based on Seth's model or like the, the the stats evaluation there. That's interesting. And he's in the same general area in terms of the um, rim protection wins as like Mike Muscala and Thomas Bryant. And sure, there's a position adjustment that can be made there, but it's not exactly what we hope. Grant Williams, incidentally, is in the same area. So it's not like they're all bad defenders. It's just that they aren't providing as much value as rim protectors. The Toronto Raptors, you were kind enough to point me in this direction, and I followed up on it. We've talked about how the Raptors have such a terrible half-court offense. I haven't checked in the last week or so, but I think they were 30th at one point recently. Well, a big part of half-court offense is it's going to be self-created, a lot of it. And they suck at self-creation. They have the lowest e-field goal percentage on self-created shots in the league. And, well, why is that? Well, because their players don't have good e-field goal percentages on self-created shots in the league. So the league average, remember, is around 49% e-field goal percentage on self-created shots. Pascal Siakam, who is the, their big star, who came back from injury after missing 10 games, but he's not really been, he's the best of their guys at this but still not even above league average in self-created shots. And he takes a shitload of self-created shots too. He's taking 17 self-created shots per 100 possessions, which is a very, very high number. And 67% of his shots uh, are self-created. He's shooting though only 46.6 e-field goal percentage. So that's uh, about two and a half points below the league average. And it only gets worse from there. OG Ananobi, he's continued to ramp up a little bit his self-creation, but he's at 40 and then you've got Fred Van Vliet, who's taking 13.8 self-created field goal attempts per 100 possessions and shooting only 43.6% e-field goal percentage. Gary Trent Jr., who I think takes way too many self-created shots, like like for Gary Trent Jr., who's supposed to be a bomber, to have 52% of his shots as self-created, just a lot of step-in long twos. And so he's taking almost 11 self-created field goal attempts for 100 possessions. He's shooting 43.8%. Scotty Barnes, we talked about how he's been kind of exploring the studio space offensively and hasn't really, to me, been ready for that. But, you know, it's not like anybody else is really capable of doing it on this team either right now. Uh, he's at 44% and he's taking 57% of his 
Field goal attempts uh, are self-created as well. So this is just a lot of self-created field goal attempts from their main guys. I think part of that is because teams are very willing to switch against them because they're all kind of like size and they just have not been able to convert these shots at all. And that's how you get to the lowest E field goal percentage on self-created shots in the league and one of the worst half-court offenses. Oh, since since we just talked about them and I wanted to give a positive cap stat was a little negative with, with Evan Mobley. Cleveland, lowest opponent effective field goal percentage on self-created shots, 46% EFG there. So I just wanted to, yeah. to mention and, that. And I do think that's that's probably a feather in Mobley's cap to some degree because mm-hmm. teams, he's switching on to guys a lot and uh, contesting them pretty well. You know, I, I think that's a, a big part because you would think, honestly, all right, they've got these small guards and they've got the two bigs. And so they're going to play a drop coverage. And so, yeah, you know what? They might be, they're not going to let you get a self-created shot at the rim probably, but they're going to leave a lot of space in the range. But because Mobley is able to switch or sometimes Allen is able to switch with Mobley behind him and they've got a lot of size, I think they're actually able to make those self-created shots more one-on-one plays as opposed to coming off the pick and roll in space, getting an open jumper. Yeah, and like, for example, theory on that. for example, Milwaukee is better than average there. And I'd be interested in the splits with specific lineups, but they're not, they haven't been as effective as Cleveland has been on that. And going to the Pistons, something I was looking at, because I mean, we've, we've talked about how they're, how terrible their defense has been this year. And that's a big part of why they're really struggling. And so I wanted to see how Isaiah Stewart is doing in rim protection. And the answer is not very well. Stewart is. that That's surprising because he he's was do- been very solid, at least by the NBA stats. We haven't looked at the full total usage, but, uh, or I'm sorry, not total use, but the full rim protection stats from Seth, but he's been good in the conventional metrics that we've looked at previously. For sure. And now, but, but using this and again, small sample, all that fun stuff. Um, Stewart is 466th of 482 players and noting importantly that position adjustments hurt him as it should because the idea is that if you're a center, this is what you're supposed to do. So if you're giving up more points, that's bad. And so Isaiah Stewart having real trouble there, like he's in negative in the rim protection wins by a more severe margin. Also, he's playing a lot of center, but I thought it would be kind of a fun exercise, especially considering how prominent these players are. I wrote down, I don't know if you've looked at this yet. I wrote down the, the only bigs that are the only players that I classify as a big that had a, that have done worse in terms of rim protection wins than Isaiah Stewart this year. Do you want to make some guesses? Rim protection wins. So this throws in not only the point save for 100, but playing time. Yes. So the bigs are worse, and so just the centers well, basically. Uh, there there are board. some power forwards on this, but I'll but you can focus on the centers. Okay, worst in win. So it's got to be a high usage guy or or a high minutes guy who's a terrible rim protector. Uh, Jokic, fourth from last and second to last of unambiguous centers. Sabonis. Sabonis so is actually towards the top. He's, I think, yeah. His, his numbers actually. That's true. his. Uh, this will be something to dive into a little bit more. His field goal percentage a lot at, at the rim has been great, a lot higher yep. this year for some reason. And Valanciunas. Yep, he's towards the bottom. Towards the bottom. Okay. Yeah, he's like sit. sixth. He's like sixth worst. Okay, let me get one more attempt here. I'm trying to Fre- think frequent that. dunked on punching bag. There are two big, big dunked on punching bags. That are, that's one of them. He's fifth lowest, and then dead last punching is bag. Punching bag. It's a little. It's a little rough. 
that's uh because I mean, especially especially for people who if we ever met in person would turn me into a punching bag oh no quickly. i just meant people we criticize a lot <laughs> no I, I i get it i think we, we could just use a different a different idiom for it less violent in, imagery okay in, in, in the future well just if only because it's like that specific image like no all these guys would kick my ass like oh of course so that should that should be acknowledged um okay one more here and this person is dead last and this is a center? Yes. This is not going to be the right answer. Kelly Olenek? It is not Kelly Olenek. It is Vooch. Nikola Vucevic. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Who actually is... had a little bit better of a rim-protecting season last year, and then like yeah. about halfway through the year fell off, and that's continued. And, and hilariously, DeMar DeRozan is in the bottom five, too. So just, I think, because he <laughs> plays some of the forward spots, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're not doing anything either. So No, that's true. He does not provide a, a, a lot of help defense. No. Last one here is the Washington Wizards, and their numbers have changed a fair amount since early on, some of the on-off stuff. Porzingis, they're still... 6.9 points for 100 possessions better when he's uh, on the floor. However, their defense is 4.2 points worse per 100 when Kristaps Porzingis is on the floor. And I know, I don't worry, I'll get to it. I know these, these boring on-off per 100 possessions conventional stats. We won't bore you with those any further. The Wizards are actually 9 points per 100 better on defense, 9.8 worse on offense, when Daniel Gafford is on the floor. And that's been interesting because Gafford's kind of been in and out of the rotation at times and they played Taj Gibson he'll get into foul trouble he's a terrible post defender doesn't even seem like that great of a pick and roll defender a lot of times like I seem to like the big gets behind him a lot at pick and roll but they are way better when he's on the floor and a big part of that is because when he's in position his rim protection is pretty good he is fourth in the NBA in points saved per 100 possessions over the positional average at 2.35 and he's contesting 37.5 percent of opponent shots around the rim when he's in the game and allowing only 53 percent shooting on those shots so that component of the defense is pretty good for him now opponents do take a relatively large number of shots at the rim when he's in the game 34 per 100 possessions and by comparison when brooke lopez is on the floor it's 27.9 field goal attempts at the rim per 100 possessions so that's a below average number for gafford but opponents don't shoot amazingly well uh, on those attempts they shoot only 57 percent at the rim uh, overall when he is in the game so he's been a very solid rim protector some of the overall aspects of his defense are not amazing but it, it at least uh, seems to have helped the, the wizards defend better when he's been on the floor so far this season ready for some news yeah Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, 
cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk about all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O, Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And we'll start with the Golden State Warriors, where Stephen Curry is going to he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks. Probably sounds like he's going to miss about three with a left shoulder subluxation that caused a labral injury. That has been the the phrasing of it. Um, uh, Dr. Narav Pandaya had a good summary of this, that a shoulder subluxation is when the shoulder partially comes out of the joint. And when that happens, it damages the labrum and the labrum has to either heal itself or you can repair it via surgery. The good news is this timeline makes it appear that at least the current expectation is that Curry's tear is not significant to significant enough to cause a surgery. But Jeff Stotts had a very useful kind of in, in his full piece on this, which if you're interested in this topic, you should definitely read it, talking about how players navigating a slight labral tear and Curry is fortunate that it is in his non-dominant hand arm is that it can either be be a persistent issue or you may eventually need surgery. And so Padres outfielder Fernando Tatis Jr. had to do that. And Paul George had to do that as well. He had a small labral tear, went made it through that season, but then had surgery in the offseason, which delayed his return to the, actually the Clippers because he got traded during that offseason. Yeah, I think he actually had to have a surgery on both shows and it did take him a while to go. Yeah, if, he, if Curry has to have the surgery, he's probably done for the year and and obviously if he has it in the offseason that would impact his ability to work and i think for curry he could be more affected by this than some at least he's not grappling around too much if you didn't see the play i'm not sure who it was who was driving I think it was ben matherin was driving curry came in from the corner reached down with his left hand and basically the strength with which matherin was bringing the ball up caused curry who's the moment his arm was going down like it just got immediately sent in the other direction and when you're trying to push one direction with a muscle and the muscles engaged and then you just get overpowered and it's sent the other way that can cause you some problems so you know curry's finishing at the rim has been awesome this year you know kind of getting that extension with the left hand on some of those finishes like you could see that being kind of a problem for him but it's probably more of an issue the bigger you are to have a shoulder issue where you're trying to put your arms above your head to contest and go get rebounds and stuff like that but it's officially time now to panic for yes. golden state i think given how terrible they are on the road they fell to two and 12 and andrew wiggins isn't even necessarily going to be back he's cleared like to practice but we'll see how that goes he's missed some time dream on green has been dealing with like ankle and uh, also now a right quad contusion he's questionable against the sixers jordan Poole's been awful they're gonna need him to come back and play the way he played without curry well and a year ago and on top of that 
I know people are concerned about the starters and the starting five and the closing five and all that. There's also the huge problem of the non-pool minutes now because the Warriors, they have Jordan Poole and kind of filled that. So presumably that's going to go to Dante DiVincenzo and potentially Ty Jerome. That's going to be a challenge for Steve Kerr and for this team to generate good offense in the kind of the backup units might might need another reformulation of the second unit yeah that's a great point and uh, so someone's gonna have to just do more dribbling uh, and scoring they don't really have any ryan Rollins certainly isn't ready but yeah the warriors are the 10th seed right now they're 14 and 15 they got i think either three or four games left on this road trip which is pretty difficult they'd be a decent bet maybe to lose all of those and they were helped to stay afloat last year without curry by the fact that enough teams were tanking that they were able to right the ship and stay competitive and i think they actually won either their last five or the or the or their last six so yeah this and then it could be a big marathon just to make it into the play-in if not to mention the top six when curry comes back like seems like this is gonna be like at least a three-week type of injury for him and you know they could go they could win two of their next like 10 games they got the grizz on christmas they do at least have a big homestand after that but yeah this is a big problem and, for them. and it's too bad because curry now is probably not going to be in the mvp conversation anymore after this but he would have been my mvp at least as of a couple weeks ago yeah it's, it's a big problem for the warriors and as you said it, it probably especially considering the risk of re-injury and everything else it, it probably puts a, a real damper on curry's mvp chances and the later edge of this recovery will actually in some ways be a bigger problem because the Warriors are playing winnable games at home that become significantly less winnable without Curry. And so yeah. losing some. Yeah, of you those, almost you almost are like, hey, if you he's going to miss a hard part of the schedule, that's almost better. Right. Because you're probably going to lose some of those anyway. Exactly. So now like a home game against the Trailblazers or the Hawks, depending on how healthy the Hawks are. We'll get to that in a second. Um, that is more, significantly more dangerous than it was before. So we'll see where the Warriors are. Kevin Pelton has a good piece about that as well, talking about how they might need to win two thirds of their remaining games after Curry comes back to make it out of the play in. And mm. they've done that before, but that's a lot to ask. And yeah, that's, of course, that's the 55 win pace, basically. Right. So, uh, for Dallas, this I think could be a, a pretty big injury as well. Yes. And it's a hamstring tear is what has been said for Moxie Kleba. And got some some good tweets uh, on this again from Jeff Stotts. Shams saying a six to eight week timeline for him that that's good, at least better than it, it sounded like it might be earlier in the day. Uh, and so whether it's the tendon versus the muscle belly, the tendon is worse. Chris Middleton had that and missed most of a season uh, back in 2016-17. Uh, I know that because I actually wrote about that for ESPN.com on their late team previews where you actually wrote about every single player. I was That was fun to do that for that one time. I don't want to... Is that That's the only that. time I've heard you describe writing as fun. It's I've nostalgicized it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I could go back and get some of our texts and G-chats from the time. So, and Stott says he knew that Maxi hyperextended the knee, so there might be an avulsion component to the injury, meaning the muscle tearing away from the bone. And it did say that all treatment options are being considered. I usually don't like to hear that because usually if you're considering all treatment options, that means that surgery is one of the treatment options. Sure. So I, I don't think that six to eight weeks, that's good to hear because it seemed like this might be something that would have him out for the year. And they're, they can't go anywhere without him. Like he he's, I mean, we are going to, now we're going to see more Christian Wood. Uh, he did play down the end against Cleveland yesterday and Cleveland really dominated them. Wood wasn't able to get much going. Um, I thought his pick and roll defense was, was pretty bad in that game. Well, and this, he's going to play 
more regardless, and we'll see whether that can take some of the load off of Luca and them. This yeah. all it means that Dallas just can't play the same way they did before. Like they don't they don't really have another Moxie Kleba. The parallel we we had a discussion a couple weeks ago about Larry Nance and how in some ways he was the least replaceable Pelican because there was they have nobody else who can do what he does. And we'll see how that works with Moxie Kleba. Hopefully he can come back strong though before the playoffs at bare minimum. On the good news, Robert Williams will be back on Friday against the Magic. That's good to see. Unfortunately, another rim protector will be out. Clint Capella, strained right calf on Wednesday. He's expected to miss approximately one to two weeks. Again, if you have to leave the game with a, a muscle injury, that's uh, kind of the minimum timeline. So we'll see more in Yekka Kongu. John Collins still not back, though, I don't think, right? No, he is not back yet. And neither is DeJounte. Yeah, so that they're, I mean, that's three of their top four players out. Uh, Hunter is back, though, at least from the hip. Yes. Yes. And then, Um, yeah, go ahead. And then LaMelo Ball is back. He played Wednesday in the Hornets. It was kind of a weird, wild game. They had an overtime loss to the Detroit Pistons. Killian Hayes had some really nice moments. Um, he Lamelo fouled out and then wasn't in for some garbled possessions late. And then Gordon Hayward, hopeful to return per Woj on Friday. So they're going to make that decision after shoot around. But the Hornets have been doing this whole thing where we don't know anything about the status of a player and then they're just coming back. And I prefer to have more detailed timelines like we've gotten from some teams. But it's good to have those players back. Unfortunately, LaMelo's brother Lonzo, there are no guarantees he's going to play at all this season, which is definitely a concern. Yeah, Woj said on TV that he's rehabbing the knee now. He's still feeling some pain in it. And that's that's just the way it's supposed to go with the surgery generally is you have the surgery, you've then that kind of gets rid of what's supposed to be causing you the pain. Maybe you have some swelling or whatever, but it's not you're not having acute pain. And so that that's definitely an issue and it seems like this is a totally intractable injury for Alonso and maybe it's one of the we were looking at kind of like a Brandon Roy type of situation at at this point uh James Edwards went on the always valuable hoops hype podcast and discussing Boyan Bogdanovich uh Edwards said, my guess is the Pistons don't necessarily want to trade him, but if there's an offer like an unprotected first and maybe a young player or multiple firsts, I think that maybe entice them to do so. I mean, even an unprotected first <laughs> that's far enough out to have any upside, I think would be a lot <laughs> for Boyan. So if that's actually their price, and, and we've seen this before with the Pistons where they've been, they've had high prices on guys and, and like Jeremy Grant for a while, they didn't trade him. And then of course they ended up not getting that much for him. Maybe they could have gotten two firsts for him. It, had they traded him at at earlier points um so but they generally it seems like with the pistons at least when these prices have been reported that that seems to be relatively accurate for what they're looking for for sure and um we're recording this on december 15th per bobby marks 88 percent of the players in the nba can be traded now there are still a number that will come in on i believe it's january 15th and then there's some that just straight up can't be traded or can't be traded without their consent so that means there are more deals possible now than were were possible yesterday but that is no guarantee that a deal will happen now or happen at all. So just wanted to to have that out there. The Clippers got another nice win this time over the Minnesota Timberwolves, 99 to 88. And then they're playing the second end of a back-to-back against the Suns without Kawhi, Paul George, Reggie Jackson, Luke Kennard, Norm Powell. Looks like most of those are shorter injuries. Hopefully it's hopefully it's more of like a, hey, it's a back-to-back and they're putting a little more of a reason for it. We'll have to find that out in the next couple of days. Also, Vita Zubats is questionable with left knee discomfort. So 
again, we'll have to monitor. We knew Kawhi was going to be out, but then the others were a little more surprising other than Norm Powell, who's still coming back from his groin issue. And on the same part of that same game, Devin Booker will return. He has missed two games with his hamstring issue. He will be back. But Cameron Payne is out, so the foot sprain that, that knocked him out of the Rockets game is enough to m- have him miss another at bare minimum. And then DeAndre Jordan is currently listed as questionable for that contest. Yeah, and I hope Booker is not rushing back due to the fact that Payne is injured and Chris Paul had to play 37 minutes uh, in their last game. But yeah, they are definitely light uh, on ball handling. And they don't really have a third point guard type. On that Nate, team. I don't know if you're ready for this, but Udonis Haslam is starting tonight. <laughs> For the yeah, first but, time, for the first time since the bubble, Udonis Haslam is starting an NBA game because yeah, and, and that bubble game was like they weren't they didn't care whether they had home court against Indiana, so they just played it. Right. And so they're playing Houston on Thursday, and Dwayne Dedman and Omer Yurtsevin are already out. And so Bam is dealing with a left ankle sprain. He is not going to play. And this is a, I believe this is a back-to-back for them. Kyle Lowry's also not playing for rest. Oladipo, injury management. And then we still don't know. Caleb Martin and, and Nikola Jovic are both questionable. Martin due to a left ankle irritation and Jovic due to back spasms. So it is a very shorthanded Heat team that is going to have a very old hand at the helm. We were hoping to see Drew Holiday against John Morant, but that's not going to happen tonight. He'll be on the sidelines still, uh, Drew Holiday with a non-COVID illness. Minnesota, they played that game to uh, not very rave reviews offensively without D'Angelo Russell, and they've got Jordan McLaughlin out as well. He's now questionable for Friday against the Thunder, as is Reed Gobert with a left ankle sprain. Carl uh, Anthony Towns was reported on TV yesterday that they're hoping to get him back in early January. Unfortunately, tonight's NBA strategy stream will not feature Jose Alvarado. He's been in and out with this right rib contusion. I think he really tried to rush back to play that set against the Suns at home and did not look very good in that game we talked about on Tuesday of Jazz Pels. So he's not going to play, get a little bit of rest. Unfortunately, in OKC, uh, Usman Jang had been playing a little bit for them and looking okay-ish, but now he has a non-displaced fracture in his right wrist, so he's going to miss a bunch of development time for a guy who's trying to improve his shooting. That That's too bad. Well, and Nate, the cruel twist of fate that we got asked a question in the mailbag episode of the 15 and 60, asking specifically about Usman Jang and the overstuffed Oklahoma City rotation, and our reply was, somebody's going to get hurt. Unfortunately, it's Usman Jang. So that's well. Hopefully, he can make a full recovery, be back, and and be at bare minimum be back, and you know by around the deadline, and then hopefully have a healthy year and a healthy off season. Did you did you, you didn't do the Wolves right? I did. I did. Oh, you did. Okay. Yeah. Um, go, go R.J. Hampton. Being on. Yeah. R.J. Hampton. Um, he also just changed his representation to CAA, so maybe he'll be a Nick next year. But he also did. I I think this is a a good move for a young player who's on the margins of the rotation. He requested a temporary G League assignment to the Lakeland Magic, and the Magic Force said yes. And so he's going to get some playing time then there. We don't know the duration of that assignment, but I like it when a player does this, takes the initiative, and gets that for playing time. And unfortunately, a young guard who is not going to get more playing time soon is Tyrese Maxey. Originally, Maxey, you know, he fractured his left foot in the middle of November, and we were hearing three to four weeks. 
we're now in the at the end of that three to four weeks, and Doc is saying that Maxi will be out a few more weeks. So we're getting closer to probably like a six to eight week timetable for him. That would mean Maxi misses Christmas Day and a number of other things. And it's good for Philly that they have Embiid and James Harden back, but they are missing Maxi, of course. Yeah, that's a little bit concerning with a broken bone, particularly a foot, when because bones are kind of just supposed to heal on a timeline, and when they're not, you wonder if it's not going the way they want it to i mean zion i'm not sure exactly this is this wouldn't have been a jones fracture or like it it seems like a pretty small fracture because the timeline would have been longer although we're going to get to that longer timeline now it it seems like that's just something to monitor there that like maybe something has gone gone wrong uh and i'm i'm hopeful that we won't get more negative updates on that kevin herter didn't play in the raptors win by the kings last night uh, Terrence Davis replaced him. He's questionable with left ankle soreness for Friday against the Pistons as the Kings righted the ship on what it had been a brutal road trip. Good news that Blake Wesley, who had that severe left MCL tear, he's actually going to return on December 17th. These young guys, they, they just heal so fast, man. <laughs> I wouldn't know so, anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so he's been out since late October. So that's a that's a pretty good recovery from a from a torn MCL. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be grade three. So yeah, good to see him back. Zach Collins, though, didn't play on Wednesday against the Blazers. He's, as we talked about with John and uh, a little of some of the rim protection stats from South they're showing too. He's uh, having a nice season. And Simone Fontecchio, he is out for Thursday against the Pels uh, as well for Utah. Uh, he'd been on the fringes of the rotation, although Rudy Gay is back down. And as we alluded to in the last news segment, DeLon Wright is hopeful to be back on this current road trip for the Wiz. And it's been almost two months uh, for him with that severe hamstring <laughs> issue as well. And Monte Morris returned from his absence to play against his former team, the Denver Nuggets. He had, I think, 20 and seven in that game. All right, this is fun. We'll close out the week here and talk to you all again again on sunday till then reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil 